And we're going to talk about the state budget that the governor deal that. And we're going to talk about the state budget that government. (laughs) (laughs) Government deal. (laughs) Government deal. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, happy Shutdown Monday to you. Happy Shutdown Monday to you, though the shutdown has already left us and only just gotten here. Yeah, we barely knew you, Shutdown. We're excited to be back for another episode of Peach Pod. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about the brief-lived government shutdown uh, that occurred over the weekend last weekend when Democrats withheld their votes in the Senate over this ongoing debate over immigration and a a whole host of other issues. Um, As you may have seen in the news, and as we've been kind of scrambling to keep up with on recording day today, Uh, The shutdown ended after basically being only going over the weekend, but we're going to talk about the shutdown that was and where this conversation is now because this is an issue that is not exactly over. In fact, it's got a new timetable, uh, so we're going to talk about that some too. And then for our second topic this week, I'm going to be joined by Wesley Tharp. He's the research director at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. And we're going to talk about the state budget that Governor Deal recommended to the legislature. Uh, He put out those recommendations last week during a very slow, snowy week in Atlanta. Um, So we're going to talk about the recommendations that he made and where that puts the budget moving forward through the legislative session. As you probably heard by now, the budget is the one constitutionally required thing that the legislature does. So it's an important thing for us to talk about. Uh, But first, we're going to start with our discussion of immigration and the government shutdown. So last Friday, Democrats and a few Republicans withheld the votes needed to pass a continuation of government funding in the Senate, and this forced a government shutdown starting at midnight on Friday. Um, Over the weekend, both sides used the Sunday news shows and Twitter and all of their other media outlets to try to blame the other side for a shutdown, saying it was either the Schumer shutdown or the Trump shutdown, uh, but basically making the claim that neither side really wanted to see the government shut down and that this was all the fault of the other team. And then on Monday, when things were really supposed to get real with the shutdown, negotiations over a short-term spending bill came to a conclusion between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. Democrats ultimately decided to give the votes that they needed to reopen the government, along with a couple of the Republicans that held out on Friday. And so as of Monday night, the government is back open, but it's open on a relatively short time frame uh, because the ongoing discussion around immigration, which was basically the, well, one of the causes of this brief government shutdown, That issue is not solved. It doesn't look like it's close to being solved. But the Senate basically reset the clock for about three weeks to try to figure this thing out. Um, So, Luke, I'm just going to admit off the top, I'm very confused about where we are, uh, about what's going on with this government shutdown. Um, It basically did a 180 from what I thought it was going to be when thinking about this over the weekend. But what was your reaction to seeing the government shut down on Friday and then this seemingly pretty quick resolution on Monday? Yeah, I will agree. That was not exactly what I expected to have happen. I thought the shutdown was going to be a lot longer. Um, but the whole time, really, I think I think we should start at the be- beginning. That's a great place to start. And 
with this shutdown, the first thing and the biggest thing you should think about when you think about this shutdown is the fact that the government is currently run by a bunch of people who do not know how to govern. And that is why this happened, and that is the biggest reason why this happened, because all of the things that were disagreed upon are things that theoretically and in public all parties agree on, that both sides agree on. Because there's been many times that Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and Paul Ryan has said that we need to do something about the Dreamers. And so on that issue, which is the biggest reason why the Democrats opposed the funding bill, apparently everyone's in agreement in what their public statement has been, is that we have to handle this issue. But despite Donald Trump several months ago saying that he was not going to renew DACA, they've done absolutely nothing to solve the problem. So that's thing one. Thing two is that if they were running the government in the way that they should be running the government, we would have a budget instead of these continuing resolutions that constantly are being brought up and being funded on a, you know, monthly, sometimes weekly basis. And that's just not really a way to govern. And so this whole thing comes from the fact that they're not able to govern. And that's the biggest thing that I think about in this. And partially that's because at the end of the day, Republicans know how to be intransigent. They know how to not let things happen. They're not very great at making things happen while governing on the federal level. And Democrats kind of have the exact opposite mentality, that they want everything to work. They want everything to go smoothly. They want the government to be efficient and be predictable. And so it was hard for Democrats at any point to get any leverage at all. But I think and we're going to get into this, that people are not giving them enough credit yet about the position they're in, because many of the people that I've talked to or just seeing on social media feel like the Democrats gave up everything, and I don't think that's true. Well, let's start with the biggest piece of this, which is the immigration debate that's going on. Um, So as you noted, part of this is that uh, in September, the president announced the end, basically the time to end of the DACA program. This is a program that allows undocumented immigrants who are brought here as children um, to have some sort of legal status that was authorized by the executive branch by President Obama. Um, He did this back in 2012, but he did it in response to a failed negotiation over immigration, which has basically been the status of immigration policy since the mid-2000s. They haven't really come up with some sort of comprehensive solution to addressing the people that are here without documentation and uh, dealing with making our immigration system more efficient for people who want to come here but aren't here already. Uh, But when President Obama announced his patch on the DACA program, he basically said that this is nothing more than a patch and what we really want to see is comprehensive immigration reform from Congress. Uh, That issue languished through the rest of his administration. And then, as you know, Republicans were elected to have unified control of government after 2016. And President Trump decided to roll back President Obama's patch without a predetermined legislative solution and basically gave the Senate six months or gave the Congress six months to figure it out. We've now gotten to the beginning of the year here in January, and they haven't come up with something to this point, and they only have until March 6th until the full rollback begins. And so this is sort of the pressure point that Democrats are wanting to force their issue on. Um, And so this was sort of the stated reason that 
or the the implied reason the Democrats withheld their votes on Friday and shut the government down over the weekend. Um, I was curious to get the insights of somebody who is a dreamer and somebody who is also an advocate on this issue. So here is Raymond Partolan. My name is Raymond Partolan. I am now 24 years old and I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm a DACA recipient. I moved to the United States when I was one from the Philippines, and I became undocumented when I was 10 after uh, my family's applications for a green card were denied by Immigration and Naturalization Services. And so at this point, given that Senate Democrats and some Senate Republicans are threatening a government shutdown over the issue of immigration, what I have to say to that is that no one wants to see the government shut down. But if that's what it's going to take for Congress to act on an issue that affects so many hundreds of thousands of people across the country, and 24,000 of whom live here in our state of Georgia, I think that's what it's going to have to be. Every single day after March 5th, when the DACA program sunsets, over 1,400 DACA recipients will lose their status. They will lose their protection and their safety and their security from deportation that that they've enjoyed since 2012 when the DACA program uh, first came into being. Uh, they'll lose their ability to work legally and they'll lose their ability to drive legally in most states. And so Congress must act now to find some kind of reasonable solution uh, to this issue. We need a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients who have lived here in the United States the majority of their lives and who know no other home. And if it's going to take a government shutdown for Congress to come together and negotiate on this, then I think that that's what it's going to have to be. All right. So, Luke, do you agree that uh, if a shutdown was necessary to come up with to come up with a legislative solution on DACA, do you think that that's what Democrats should have forced in this instance? I mean, I do, because the thing is, you know, I've had some friends who, you know, are federal employees that have, you know, complained about having uh, their jobs temporarily halted and they, you know, didn't know when they were going to have to go back to work and all that stuff. And like, that's massively inconvenient. And, you know, people have student loans to pay and credit cards to pay and all that kind of stuff. However, in comparison to 800,000 people who do not know if they're going to be able to live in the country that they are only causing it of and have to go back to a country that they left when they were a toddler and like try to build a life there because of the fact that there's a lack of presidential leadership on a very critical issue, I think that's necessary because, you know, to rewind to the previous presidency, President Obama wanting to do something different than President Bill Clinton did on healthcare. Healthcare during the Clinton administration was very, very top down. The president, you know, the presidency, the executive branch came up with the idea and then they pushed it in Congress. Obama kind of did that, but more of what he did was let Congress work out the details, but he very strongly pushed about what his priorities were, things that he would and would not accept, and he kept the ball rolling in a way that was critical to that effort being successful. What we see here in Trump is like this very strange thing where he's going back 
to trying to perform in the way that the forgotten presidencies of like post Abraham Lincoln did, where they're just like, yeah, Congress does everything. I'm just here and I'm, I do stuff. And like, I'm just, I'm around. I'm a figurehead. And that's basically what it seems like Trump wanted to do without that one really, really critical step of saying like what he actually wants out of an immigration deal. And his position is constantly changing. And so. Congress had not done a very good job of working on this issue at all. Like we like we discussed already, like this had been going on for a while. Trump said he was not going to renew DACA for, you know, what was it, six months ago, something like that. So yeah, early September. Right. So like it's been a while. So they finally came up with a solution that was bipartisan, that Lindsey Graham and Dick Durbin agreed on that would have passed the Senate, probably would have passed the House. And you know, Trump's staff decided to put in the craziest people on the immigration issue in his ear instead of people trying to work out a solution. And, you know, that's why Senator Tom Coggin and Senator David Perdue basically derailed this thing. And so at this point, I don't see another option but to force their hands on the immigration issue because... One, the time, you know, the timeline is is nigh. You know, the end is nigh of the period where DACA recipients are safe in this country, and they were very clearly not going to handle it otherwise. And as I think we'll probably get into, I I think they've made significant progress on that because people you know do need to realize that there are some Republicans like Lindsey Graham, a couple others that really really care about this issue and um while they do not 100 percent agree with the way that democrats do they are pushing for a lot of the same things that we want and as of right now we're they still are on our side on that issue and had we pushed this thing out longer they probably would not have been and so i think that's a critical threat of this that is being missed by a lot of people on the left yeah I ended up in uh, Pod Save America's Fight Club on this, which is not really a place I end up very often, but I was definitely, I wanted to lead Fight Club myself, and I feel a lot less diplomatic than Raymond did uh, in the statement that he gave us. I tweeted out on Friday that, you know, even if this doesn't go the Democrats' way in terms of the politics of this, you know, fuck it. At some point, we have to stand up for something of moral importance, like defending the right of dreamers to have a future in this country. And the reason that I have become so frustrated with this issue to the point of embracing the idea of a shutdown over this issue was that we have tried for years to deal with comprehensive immigration reform. It failed in the Bush administration. It failed in the Obama administration. And then pretty needlessly, the president set the DACA program to end. And not only did he set it to end with a date six months in advance, but no plan about how to get to some sort of solution, which gives away their and argument. And quite critically, no no indication of what he would actually want from a plan, which yeah. I think is the biggest presidential failing in it. Yeah, and it gives away... Because even if Trump did nothing to push a plan, he could have at least said, like, these are my parameters. Please have something in this box. Well, and it gives away... The fact that the the original criticism about this was that, oh, you know, we feel for the dreamers, too, and, and we think that they need a solution. But what Obama did was not a legal way to do it. And Congress needed to be the one to grant some sort of legal status to dreamers. And like, that's fine. I see some 
merit to the legal argument about that, but I'm not sure where I really landed on that. But like at the end of the day, fine. If you're going to do it legislatively, we're going to end up in the same place anyways. Well, one, one argument for that that I would say, you know, in the pro category is that it's a lot harder to go back on it if it is enshrined in law instead of an executive order, as as we have seen from this president. So yeah, on that and, front, it, it is it sets expectations a lot easier than executive orders do. So in everyone's stated preference, in the Democrats' preference, in some congressional Republicans' preference, including leaders like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, and in at least some of Trump's public statements, everybody wanted to get DACA done. It's clear, though, that every time we come up to the precipice of getting this done and Democrats are ready to deliver the votes on this, Trump talks to Tom Cotton or Stephen Miller or David Perdue and I don't know, gets afraid of making a deal or gets reminded that he's a white supremacist and doesn't like dark skinned immigrants coming to this country. I don't know what the deal is. I mean, is. I think it's easier than that. It's just like what everyone says is that Trump literally will believe and agree with the last person he heard. I, I think and it's so, honestly that simple. The reason that I'm sitting here in the fuck it, let's shut it down position is because we've been through this over and over and over again. And it's not even true that there are no DACA recipients affected right now. If you were going to age into the program in this uh, six-month time window that the president set to wind the program down, or if you didn't get your reapplication paperwork in in, in time, or you were just outside of the six-month window, your DACA protections are going to run out in like mid-March or later, then there is no legal protection for you right now or going forward after your DACA expires. And when it expires, you lose your work permit and you become you know, significantly more at risk of deportation. And so not only have we kicked the can down the road on a comprehensive solution, we've also kicked the can down the road on just figuring out this one narrow issue. And if Democrats didn't put their foot down and say, we're not going to fund a government that doesn't fund health insurance for children and doesn't protect the 700,000 dreamers in this country, then it's not a government worth funding. And so that's where I thought Democrats were on Friday. And then now on Monday, they've, some people have said caved. I think you're a little bit softer on, on their decision on this, Luke. But now apparently we've ended up that that wasn't actually the commitment saying that this government shouldn't be funded. Um, right. So how do you think we got from here to there between Friday and Monday? And, and was this the right decision by Democrats to uh, open up the government again today? Right. Well, this is one of those times I have to point out, you know, everything will look amazing in retrospect either way it goes down. So on that front, I, I don't want to be in the prediction business, but I want to let's assume no one's lying and this is how I think it's going to play out. One thing we need to note at the forefront of this is that yourself and a lot of the people who are the angriest at Chuck Schumer right now are the same people who would lambast and really, really go hard on Ted Cruz every time he shut down the government in the past couple of years for reasons that were less, way less noble uh, than this. But I think acknowledging that if you say that shutting down the government over a political issue is a bad thing, then it needs to always be a bad thing and not be only a bad thing when you disagree with the reasoning. That's one thing. I'm kind of agnostic on that question. It's just something I think needs to be stated. 
So the deal that has been made is one that is not a promise to Chuck Schumer only. It is also a promise to Lindsey Graham. And so if things do not go down this way, that means that Mitch McConnell has lied to Lindsey Graham's face, who is a member of his caucus and one with a lot of influence. And so I'm just sort of doubtful that Mitch McConnell thinks his position is so strong that he's going to do that. So that's that's my starting point in this whole conversation. So the deal that the, the Democrats and Lindsey Graham and a couple other Republicans have gotten are that before February 19th, 9th, when the government is set to shut down again because of the CR situation, that they will have a comprehensive immigration reform solution of some kind on the floor of the Senate and voted on. If that does not happen by that February 9th date, then sometime around there, they will have DACA up or down. And that is the deal that Mitch McConnell and the Republican leadership made in the Senate. So there's nothing legally binding that will make them do that. However, what that does is tell me and assures me is that if they break that promise on February 9th, the government will shut down again. So in my, in my position, my idea is that we still have the ability to hold their feet to the fire but we do it under the circumstances where we have a better set of cards. Because we had decent cards, and we could have kept the government shut down, but I think things would have started swaying and turning against us quite quickly. And I don't mean in the horrible, pundit, who's winning, who's losing way. I mean just in raw votes, there would have been more Republicans that would have not wanted this shutdown to continue and that could have led to the end of the filibuster. It could have ended to a, led to a lot of other things. We have kept it so that we have some very influential Republicans who still agree with us and our position. And so I think we did not get the sexy wing of we got DACA right now, but we might get it in like two weeks. That's how I look at it. And we still have the ability to hold their feet to the fire, shut the government down again if they don't keep their word. So that's where I'm coming from on this. So here's my problem with that because I'm because I'm not typically in Fight Club. I don't actually like using the government shutdown as a leveraging mechanism as a negotiation tool for the minority party. I don't think that we should be governing this way. But if you come to a situation where all the parties involved say they want to do something and then one of the parties, the Republicans say well, we want to do it, but we keep dragging our feet and we keep doing other things and saying that this stuff is important, but we'll get to it later. And then you've put in a policy that doesn't actually protect people up until the deadline that you've stated, this early March deadline to renew the DACA program, then there needs to be something to like force engagement on that issue. But what I came away from the weekend and away from today thinking is that this shutdown was never really about getting DACA done. It was about a host of other issues, many of which were procedural, and that Democrats wanted to maybe, I guess, fire a warning shot across the bow to say, hey, if you don't take us seriously, we will threaten to shut the government down. Um, but they were out there this weekend, not only talking about DACA, but talking about funding for community health centers, talking about uh, continuing to fund things on a short-term CR basis, which Democrats don't like and almost everybody involved says is bad for the military and bad for its ability to plan. 
Um, I mean, it's bad for everything. It's bad for the whole government. But I mean, I I, I kind of still disagree with you on this though, because I well, mean, I think I think you can do both at the same time. Like we don't, we can walk and chew gum at the same time with this. But if you're if you're going to so like government Democrats held out their votes and forced a government shutdown over minor procedural issues. But no, that's that's not fair, though, because Republicans also vote against this. There are several Republicans that voted for the shutdown, including Lindsey Graham, Mike Lee, a couple other Republicans were with us on this. And so, so this that, that's where, my whole point is that on the funding issues, we're never going to get an agreement on them with that. You know, Chip is one the one exception to that, where the Republican position is basically our position, and if that a clean Chip bill went up or down in either chamber, it basically passed unanimously. You know, like it would go through quite easily. But on the DACA thing, like that's going to be a hard fight because even if you pass it in the Senate, you have to pass it in the House, and so we don't have that leverage in the House that we have in the Senate, and so. If Lindsey Graham and the Republicans can come up with maybe an up or down DACA vote or something similar to it that protects that population that can then pass the House, that's the best way to ensure this happens. I know, again, it's not as sexy as keeping the government shut down until we get DACA passed, but it's just not as realistic because we do not have the votes. There are 49 Democrats. That is not a majority. Well, I think this is something that needed to have been communicated somehow because I think a lot of immigration activists and a lot of folks went into this weekend thinking that Senate Democrats were taking their stand for this program. And then I think they left this weekend thinking that, no, they're, you know, they don't care about this program any more than they care about any of the other issues on the agenda right now. Um, I mean, while that's true in this moment, if two weeks from now we have an immigration solution, will people still feel that way? I don't think they would, or I hope they wouldn't, because if they're paying attention, then they would realize that this was part of a strategy. Now, do you think in three weeks, if they haven't come up with a solution, they're going to shut the government down for two, three weeks, a month, longer, if necessary? I mean, possibly. It's, it's hard to tell, because again, part of the strategy is reliant on what the Republicans that sincerely want this handled do. And... This, you know, to me, the reason why I think this is a good strategy is because the government can be shut down again in nine weeks if they, you know, uh, don't play play it straight with us. And at the moment, we still have allies on the Republican side that want to see this happen. And I think that's a stronger position than trying to make the whole party behave like Ted Cruz. That's that's you know that's yeah, that's where I'm I mean, coming with it with this. I, th- I think this is a lot different than Ted Cruz. I think the difference here versus the shutdown over Obamacare in 2013 is that all parties at the table are at least on paper in agreement that we all want to get to the same place on a solution. Uh, you know, Obama was pretty clear that, you know, funding was only going to get cut over his dead body for Obamacare if he was still the president. So to me, the shutdown in 2013 was stupid because there they were asking for a deal that was never actually going to happen. This is a forcing mechanism for a deal that, that should happen. I don't know. I'm just confused about. Well, I mean, again, and where we are in, if no one's lying, we're having a vote on, we're having a vote on an immigration solution in the next three weeks. Like that, that's my take on this. So the question is, is Mitch McConnell lying to his own members faces? publicly i mean 
he has been, which about he very well might be. Deals this year. <laughs> but if he does, then they're going to be pissed off as just as much as we are, and they won't. You know, they I imagine they will force a solution as well. I don't. I just don't get. I don't get why we shut the government down to get a procedural agreement. I think is where I land. It's like it's well, like a okay. little bit of trying to have it both ways, where. You... I mean, I don't think that's true, though, because before the shutdown, we did not have an immigration vote scheduled. And after the shutdown, we do. I think that's a major difference. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I don't know. I just I think that there was like ten. It, it, there isn't actually currently a vote scheduled. He's committed to having a vote before the end of this three week period. But he can go back on that. But. There but was if he already... does, then he betrays his own members, who will then probably vote again to shut down the government. Because remember, these same people voted to shut down the government with us. Yeah, but he sold that's out. A, Susan that's a Collins critical thing that people are not talking about. Bill. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just, it's a weird. I just didn't really understand what was going on, and I don't know. <laughs> Is there any sort of impact on the norm of shutting down the government here? Uh, for Republicans in the future, or or does then any of that even matter anymore? I mean, to me, the the Democrats temporarily shut down the government for a relatively minor procedural issue, which I think should have been avoided. But it's not. It's not. That's not why they shut it down, though. Well, I like, know, that's, but that's what they, they came away it, with. They came away with having a vote on the Senate floor on an immigration solution. That's what they have. Now, what happens if if they can get? To a, they can get a bipartisan solution, they can get it out of the Senate, and then it just languishes in the House. I don't think it would. I think if they bring it, because uh, at that point, then the pressure is going to be on Paul Ryan to do something. And so I think he's going to have to bring it up. Now, what if he responds by by passing a, a conservative bill that Democrats can't support on the Senate side, but getting enough Republican votes... Um, to get it out of the house and putting that bill on the table for the Senate and saying, Hey, we did, a, this has kind of been Paul Ryan's stance through a lot of this stuff is because he doesn't have the 60 vote threshold on the house side. Um, he's passed. They actually passed extended funding for the children's health insurance program, but they tied it to some cuts in other healthcare funding that wasn't acceptable to Democrats. Um, they also have that position on their health care vote, saying that the House voted to repeal and replace Obamacare, and it's the Senate that left it. I mean, I think that that's the thing that I'm seeing a disconnect here on is the strategy from Senate Democrats only forces a vote in the Senate, and probably something will get out of the Senate, but there is no guarantee that the Senate and the House can come up with something that they can both agree to. And so at the end of this three weeks, do the, do the Democrats really put their foot down and say, you know, they will not fund the government anymore if the Senate and the House can together, cannot together put an immigration bill on the president's desk? I mean, I think they do. And I think the important thing is, and this is, I you know, may, maybe I'm like, my head is in like a haze of a bygone era where like it matters that things are bipartisan, but we are currently in the minority, which means we do not have enough votes that if every Democrat agrees on something to pass something. And so under that scenario, we have to make some friends (laughs) with the Republicans. Like we have to have several of them that agree with us to pass something. 
And so if we do it this way, where we have a couple Republicans who very strongly agree with our position, then I imagine that will put a lot more pressure on the other Republicans to do something about it. Because especially because as far as like the heart of this policy issue, like most Americans agree that like the DACA recipients should be allowed to stay and there should be a solution. And so we have the moral high ground in saying that, like, look, we are willing to shut down down the government over this. You gave us a reasonable offer to handle this issue. We trusted you and gave you a chance to handle this issue, and you failed to do it. And so I feel like that's a much stronger negotiating position than us just saying no, 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 no. So I think the thing that's kind of highlighted here, both in the divide between me and you and, and what we've seen on Twitter and in the media today as this deal was accepted by Democrats was uh, immigration activists and sort of the left flank of the party. Their activists are pretty upset with Chuck Schumer and his agreement on this deal. Um, I think some of that is driven by some of the confusion that I share with them and that I'm not entirely sure what this whole thing was for. Uh, But moderates, um, particularly Senate Democrats, running in states that Trump won in 2018. These are folks like Claire McCaskill, Joe Manchin, oh, Heidi Heitkamp. These folks represent kind of the moderate wing of the party, wanting to govern, not wanting to flail around in a government shutdown. Um, they clearly have, I think, a different set of goals and priorities than immigration activists and, and left-wing activists in the party. And I think one of the things that's possible here is if Schumer and the Democrats cannot get a deal to legalize, at at minimum legalize the recipients on the DACA program, uh, but probably a larger deal on finding some sort of pathway to citizenship for all of the the kids in the dreamer category. Um, If that isn't part of the outcome that comes along with this, there's a real potential to see a, a more significant split between these two wings of the party. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of that? And are immigration activists and people on the left and maybe even me too being too unfair to moderates and Democrats in the Senate on this? <clears throat> so let me be clear about one thing very quickly. And this is a very large asterisk on everything else I've said. If they don't come up with a deal, Mitch McConnell's lying or the House doesn't, you know, the Senate passes a great deal, but then the House doesn't vote on it. And then the second the Democrats just like roll over, I will be very pissed off and I will lose a lot of faith. And I would find that to be unacceptable. And I think at that point, then they should use whatever tools they can to hold the line, keep the government shut down, whatever they have to do. So on that front, I would be in firm agreement with uh, the you know immigration activists and the more uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party. It's just I also have watched a lot of Georgia legislative sessions and a lot of Senate sessions and a lot, read a lot of history. A lot of big deals get made this way. <laughs> They're weird and procedural, and you feel like you know you're fighting yard by yard. But you know this is basically a war of attrition between these two sides, and it's not going to be you know the ninety yard touchdown. This is going to be the you know Georgia running game where we're getting like three yards and occasionally we get five and that's how we get first downs. You know, that's kind of where we are uh, with this. And so that's the way I view it. And that's the way I view getting big legislation done is that it doesn't, you know, you just, it's very rare that you can force the issue this way. 
And one way to, you know, remind yourselves of that is something that came up earlier, which is in 2013, when the Republicans shut down the government, they lost terribly. <laughs> you know, they did not do well. Uh, they actually, like, worsened their position compared to where they started. So you got to be aware of that. And I think this gives us a better hand to play with. And so on that front, I hope that the progressives in the Senate who are pissed off, who voted against this deal to reopen the government, I hope they still are trying to be productive in the framework that Chuck Schumer has built uh, with, you know, some of our allies on this issue on the Republican side and also hold Schumer's feet to the fire if it doesn't work out. And I don't think that's impossible to do. And I don't think we'll have a weaker position if we have to, you know, if we end up forcing the issue three weeks from now and we shut down the government again. I think we're in a stronger position because we tried to do it the, you know, responsible way. And they were unwilling to do it and they failed. Now, is there a possibility for kind of a negative feedback loop on this? I think part of what has put the Republican Party in a such an extreme position is they've used increasingly escalating tactics legislatively to try to get their way. And at times when they haven't, their activists get upset and they want to primary all of their sitting members and put in people who are more extreme, more committed, more willing to use extreme tactics. And so it feels like this sort of spiral downwards in terms of the norms that Republicans are willing to uphold. And it's part of why we are where we are. Um, Is that problem equally evident? for the Democrats or in holding Chuck Schumer accountable for what potentially could be a failed deal here. Do, do you see them doing that in a way that, that strengthens the democratic party across all of these different positions they're trying to keep within the tent? I I think it's too early to tell, but I think that's a very important question to watch going forward. Um, Because at this point, you know, that faction has done nothing to impede the ability to get this deal done the way that Schumer's trying to do it. I think it's quite clear uh, after the first year of the Trump administration where we had a shutdown pretty much to the day that <laughs> Trump got inaugurated a year after, uh, which is just really telling to me, is that like they've suffered for the extremism that has integrating into their party and i don't think we have yet i think it's made this party stronger because i don't think the democratic party of you know 2010 would have done something like this and so i think on that front it's a good thing because again like let me be 100 clear i 100 supported shutting down the government over this i was to the left of you last week when we talked about this and it's just that i have a little bit of faith in like legislative skullduggery you know because i just know that it can work and that it's again it's not sexy and it's really confusing but that's why it works it's because it's about the policy and it's about doing all these procedural things that nobody can follow and so i have a little faith in it and hopefully it's not misplaced but if it is misplaced then i will be firmly back in the campus of mag's hell people because we have to handle this issue and you know i think being responsible about it is the right way to go but if they fail to uphold their end of the bargain then if if we just roll over for that then there should be a lot of condemnation on the left about it because these are people's lives that are being basically ignored yeah that's true i 
I think where we're going to end up is is there's going to be little in the way of clarity for DACA recipients. I don't know, maybe ever, <laughs> at least any time in the near future, especially as that March deadline comes up. It's things have been unclear for far too long, and and so I understand that Democrats don't have a ton of leverage here. They certainly can't set the legislative agenda on this stuff, but. Um, I don't know. I hope that they can lay it clear in the midterms. However, this turns out, I hope they can lay it clear as to what party stood with who and um, what the path forward is going to be. So for this second topic, I'm joined by Wesley Tharp. He's the research director at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Just a note on our conversation, Wesley and I talked before the government shutdown ended. And as a part of that, deal that ended the government shutdown, the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, was funded for six years. So Wesley and I referenced the potential pitfalls for Georgia's budget if the CHIP program uh, did not get reauthorized by Congress. Uh, It did end up getting reauthorized, so the budget writers in Georgia dodge a bit of a bullet on that, along with all of the children who rely on the CHIP program for their health care. And I started out by asking Wesley what some of the highlights of the budget are this year and where we are continuing to not invest adequately as a state. In terms of thinking about the highlights of the budget, the most important thing to understand is that this is a very lean spending plan for Georgia. It comes in at technically a high watermark for the state budget in absolute dollar terms, historically at $26 billion. That's a $1 billion increase over uh, the, the fiscal plan, the budget plan passed last year around this time. And unpacking those two numbers a little bit in terms of how to think about them, uh, the $26 billion is, quote, the largest budget Georgia has ever had. But in terms of per person spending, where because Georgia is a growing state, uh, we have naturally rising needs on things like education and health care and pensions. Uh, on a per capita basis, uh, Georgia is still spending slightly less than it was before the Great Recession. Looking at that $1 billion increase over last year, that obviously sounds like a lot of money at first glance. But by our count, uh, nearly 90% of that new billion dollars is naturally eaten up by things like rising costs for Medicaid, for increased enrollment in K-12 through schools and universities, and that includes the, the increasingly popular dual enrollment program. And then a sizable investment this year that goes into their teacher retirement system uh, to shore up uh, the rising cost of pensions and the ability of Georgia's uh, teachers to have a, a sound retirement once they're done educating the children of the state. Uh, it's just about you know 10% or so of those new funds are able to go to everything else and to sorts of strategic investments uh, that help make Georgia a, a healthier, more vibrant state. That means that there are sort of systematic gaps where we don't have the funds available as a state to really target proactive investments in things that could build an economy with more broad-based prosperity and where people have more economic opportunities. I think the two most salient examples are the fact that this year's budget still includes a stubborn austerity cut to K-12 schools. Uh, The cut is about $167 million, less than the state's own funding formula. The state's quality basic education funding formula, the QBE, uh, says that we should be sending to local public school districts. The second key example is that the budget does not include uh, funds or a plan to uh, expand Medicaid under the federal health care law. Georgia could close that coverage gap for 
about 240 uh, residents of the state who are who don't have any health care options available because they're not eligible for either Medicaid or subsidies on the federal exchanges. Uh, doing that would only cost about an estimated $136 million a year by our estimates, and that is a gap in the current budget. So, Wesley, what role is federal uncertainty from the recent tax reform bill in Congress and Congress's failure to reauthorize the Children's Health Insurance Program? What impact is that uncertainty having on this budget? One of the things driving uh, this very lean approach to the budget, where it's based on only about 3.7% estimated general fund growth over last year, which is lower than it's typically been for the past few years, one of the things driving that lean approach to the budget is a lot of uncertainty uh, from a few different factors. Really, I'd say three in particular. One is that the federal tax law will swing Georgia's revenues, or it could swing Georgia's revenues in unpredictable ways. Uh, There could potentially be a sizable revenue increase, there may be a marginal decrease, or it could really be a wash. And that's something that uh, state experts are still digging into, and that there's a lot of uncertainty around. And so that is one reason why the uh, budget writers and the governor appear to be taking a fairly uh, modest, uh, conservative approach to this budget. The second piece is just broader spending uncertainty coming down from the federal level. Uh, One in particular program is that the the Children's Health Insurance Program uh, provides Georgia with uh, more than $450 million a year to pay for care for kids, to pay for a big chunk of how we provide affordable health coverage to uh, the children of this state. That program is supposed to be reauthorized, or it was supposed to be reauthorized in the past few months, and Congress has yet to reauthorize those funds. If they don't act soon, that could leave a sizable hole in the budget that uh, Georgia taxpayers and budget writers would potentially have to backfill. The third big piece of uncertainty is the potential for needing to provide a sizable subsidy package to Amazon. Some people think this could cost as much as uh, several hundred millions of dollars a year up to uh, or perhaps more than a billion dollars a year or excuse me, a billion billion dollars in terms of the overall size of the package. If lawmakers have to come back uh, in a special session or perhaps late this session uh, and authorize a package of that size, uh, a package of, of you know up to a billion dollars perhaps, uh, there will be a conversation around where does that money come from? Does it come from cutting other programs? Does it come from uh, potentially uh, new revenue raisers of some kind? Or are those dollars that have been, if you will, already set aside um, and that could be brought uh, to bear given given this really modest, lean approach to the budget uh, as it's been proposed to the General Assembly. So there's been a reporting in the press that Georgia plans to offer an incentive package to Amazon that could cost nearly a billion dollars. GBPI has discussed the need to have a more thorough analysis of business tax incentives like these and their impact. So now that Georgia is on Amazon's shortlist, or at least in Amazon's top 20, what consideration should legislators make as they weigh the costs and benefits of providing a large incentive for Amazon to come to Georgia? The best way to think about how Georgia should be approaching the Amazon deal is to think about this in the short term and the long term. Short term, immediately what lawmakers should be thinking about is what are things we can include in a subsidy package to make it as likely as possible that we get a sound return on investment. These types of things would include a lot of transparency uh, for what the deal looks like, 
uh, a lot of accountability um, for uh, certain job totals, for example, to be met, uh, for certain investment totals to be met, uh, and for the company to have to uh, stay, guarantee to stay in the state for a particular length of time. And then the deal could also include so-called uh, clawback provisions to make sure that if those targets aren't met, then the state could recoup some of the money that it had originally invested. There are examples from other states where uh, companies have gotten a windfall on the front end, but then didn't fully meet targets for jobs and investments and economic impact to the state. Uh, and states have really lost out in the end. So Georgia should just include as much in the package as possible to make sure that it's uh, sound and that there's accountability built in uh, and that there's some protections for taxpayers on the back end. Long term, I think Georgia should be thinking about trying to build a workforce, an economy, and a quality of life in the state where we don't have to give away the store uh, to compete for these sorts of big private investment deals. There are other cities and states on the, the list of finalists for this uh, particular uh, investment that likely have offered almost no incentives or much smaller incentive packages, but they're competing on the quality of their workers, on their talent, on the fact that they're great places to live, uh, great places to simply invest on the merits without those locales really having to pay a premium to attract those jobs. Since it's Governor Deal's final legislative session, could you look back on the last eight budgets of his and talk about any trends we've seen across the last several years? Are there places where we've made progress or, or places where we've continued to underinvest? So looking back historically over um, the last several budgets, because this is Governor Deal's final legislative session, a couple of things that jump out are, one, two the credit of Governor Deal and his team and lawmakers, Georgia has done a good job over the last several years in being simply sound fiscal stewards of the state, of not making the kind of reckless decisions that we've seen in places like Kansas and Illinois, uh, things like budget busting, uh, income tax cuts, um, sort of big, uh, you know, reckless changes to pension programs, uh, no big sudden movements, if you will. Uh, that's allowed... Georgia to have excess funds left over each fiscal year uh, in the wake of the Great Recession that we've been able uh, to put aside into the state's rainy day fund, the state's savings account uh, that helps protect the state from unexpected emergencies or things like significant economic downturns. The second piece, though, uh, that has, you know, kind of stands out in contrast to that uh, is that there are still important gaps in Georgia's approach to, to raising revenue and investing that have important implications for the state's family, families, communities, and economy. Among those that stand out are uh, the continued underfunding of the state's K-12 uh, funding formula over the past uh, eight years or more. Uh, that actually dates all the way back to 2003 is when the state began underfunding the K-12 formula. That means that there are fewer dollars available for local districts to invest in what works, you know, things like lower class sizes, great principles, uh, you know, sufficient art and music and enrichment activities for kids. And so the lack of that investment means that we're going to have um, a weaker workforce in the future and be less attractive for companies that, that need really high quality talent like Amazon. 
The second piece that stands out on the kind of budget gaps uh, piece of this is the state's really stubborn refusal to expand the Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act. This is something at this point that all but 18 states have done. And from a financial standpoint and an economic return on investment standpoint, it's really kind of a no-brainer at this point. It's common sense that uh, the ability to draw down uh, $9 from the federal government for every $1 that the state puts in and to have tax dollars that Georgians are already contributing to Washington be sent back to us to pay for health care. It's really you know, just common sense that, that that would be a sound decision for the state. It would help shore up our rural health care system, uh, help uh, as many as half a million Georgians, uh, workers and entrepreneurs be able to see the, see the doctor. Uh, and that you know, could really just be a booster shot for local communities and for our economy. And is there anything else you'd like to add about this budget or other things that GBPI is tracking this session? One important additional issue to think about for this legislative session is whether uh, there is a renewed effort to pass some sort of comprehensive tax reform. This is a matter that got pretty close to the finish line last year. Uh, The specific bill at the time was House Bill 329, and it combined a number of factors, uh, perhaps most memorably uh, the potential of moving Georgia to a, a flat tax that would have been a lower top income tax rate paired with moving to a flat rate. Uh, And that bill also included a non-refundable earned income tax credit, or what we call a Georgia work credit. There's some possibility uh, that uh, a renewed effort to look at how Georgia uh, raises revenues, potentially cutting income tax rates, uh, and doing other things like investing in families uh, with a Georgia work credit uh, could return to being on the table. And so we're going to be keeping a close watch on that to make sure that anything that's done is good for Georgia families, good for communities, and good for the economy, and as well as good for Georgia's budget and its ability to meet its needs long term. All right. Well, thanks again, Wesley, for joining us earlier this week. All right. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up the show for the week. Uh, Luke, thank you for keeping my spinning, confused head uh, on track this episode. I hope it's on track. I guess the listeners can decide. I just hope I'm on track because if not, I'm going to have to eat my hat and have a whole episode of unhinged ranting about um, how mad I am at the Senate Democrats for letting us down. So hopefully uh, this strategy pays off. Well, we can, if it doesn't pay off, we can flip roles and I will uh, carefully, methodically explain the legislative shenanigans that went on to get us to this point when we're in the midst of a weeks long government shutdown in the spring. Because you are a very stable genius. I'm working on that. Uh, but with that, I think we're going to leave that there. Uh, so we will talk to y'all next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.